That was quick, after a week full of celebrations to mark the 100th episode that we aired a few days back. But now it's time to get back to it, constant listeners. I am your host, as always, Nick Deolius. This is the uh, the never predictable, but I hope always interesting in an unconventional sort of way, far middle podcast. I love spring, and with it being late April and heading into the best month of the year, in my opinion, which is May, it doesn't get any better than this. Today also marks Administrative Assistant Day. So if you're listening on our initial air date of April 26th and you work in an office, make sure you go out and grab something to show your appreciation for the true leader who gets things done in any office environment, which is the unsung hero of the administrative assistant. And if you're listening to this episode after its initial air date and you forgot about Administrative Assistance Day, just remember apology is sometimes the best policy and you can always make amends with coming through even though you may be a bit late. Now, this being number 101, I've got to come clean with answering a question that I've received from at least a dozen different constant listeners, and that is what I intend to do when it comes to these sports dedications for each episode now that we have entered triple-digit episode numbers. I thought about it, and where I landed was to pick a specific date that the episode airs, or in some instances, the week that it airs, and to dedicate the episode to a notable event that occurred on that date or that week in history and in the world of sports, of course. Now, that'll give us an infinite number of possibilities for dedications, as well as give us the opportunity to go down some interesting rabbit holes to make things even more fun for those future dedications. And we are presented with that very kind of an opportunity here with our episode 101 dedication, April 26th. That's the date in professional baseball history that holds some special meaning for very special pitchers and how they set career marks for outings that came as close as you can get to perfection without achieving perfection. For pitchers, of course, perfection is epitomized by the no-hitter. Very difficult, quite rare. And when someone achieves that feat of pitching, no-hitter, they are the front-page story, lead story on every sports paper, sports television show, and sports internet site. But when I did some digging around that date of April 26th, I noticed something that was quite intriguing because that date seems to be a magnet for Hall of Fame pitchers going out on the mound and pitching a gem of a game, but falling just shy of a no-hitter. In other words, they went out on April 26th and they pitched a one-hitter game on the mound. Now, two pitchers accomplished this feat that are of note on April 26th. The first was one of my favorite pitchers of all time, One of the reasons being because he was left-handed just like me. The second being he pitched in his prime when I was a kid and an avid baseball fan at the time. And the third reason being he was one of those eccentric uh, personalities that makes for great entertainment or great interviews. We dedicated a prior episode of The Far Middle to him a while back. That pitcher is Steve Carlton, or Lefty as he was known. And not only did Steve Carlton pitch a one-hitter against his old team, the Cardinals, on this date in 1980, as a member of the Phillies, but in doing so, he notched his sixth one-hit game in his career, and that mark of six made him the first National Leaguer to get that far uh, in terms of career one-hit games, and that remains the record in the National League to this day, six one-hitter games. Now, you fast forward from April 26, 1980, to exactly a decade later, April 26, 1990, another individual who we dedicated, I believe, not one, but multiple Far Middle podcasts to in the past, went out and pitched a one-hitter, marking his 12th 
one-hit game in his career. That pitcher was Nolan Ryan, and he tied at 12 the career mark for one-hit games, not just for the American League, but for all of baseball on that April 26th day in 1990. Whose mark did he tie? The great Bob Fellers. So I suppose we dedicate episode 101 to near perfection in the form of the one-hitter in baseball, Steve Carlton in 1980 on the date of this episode airing, setting the National League career mark at six. Nolan Ryan, exactly 10 years later on the same day, tying the American League and Major League mark of 12 alongside fireball Bob Feller. I love it. The one-hit wonder of baseball starting pitching. Perfection gets all the glory with pitching, whether it be the perfect game or the no-hitter, but then something that is as close to perfection as you can get, but falling just shy of it, it seems to be ignored far too often, and it deserves more of the share of the limelight. The far middle can make that right. Now, one last point to make before we leave our dedication, almost obligatory point to make for a Pittsburgher like myself. Um, perhaps the most notorious one-hit game in history was thrown by Harvey Haddix of the Pirates in 1959. He pitched over 12 innings, took a perfect game past the ninth, ended with a one-hitter, and he did it against the Milwaukee Braves, who had two sluggers in the lineup by the names of Eddie Matthews and Hammer and Hank Aaron. And Haddix and the Pirates, they lost the game in the bottom of the 12th. Crazy, but one of the things that makes baseball, and in specific, uh, special instances of baseball history so damn interesting. That was fun. Now let's start connecting dots and making connections like we do. Baseball, right, always been a sport centered around data and statistics. If you can't keep score, then you don't have accurate data and statistics, which then makes it really difficult, if not impossible, to assess individual players and teams in any sort of comparative debate on who was better or which team was more compelling. And that's true within a season, certainly true when you start debating and discussing different players and teams across eras. Let's take that same concept and connect it to something with much higher stakes than the outcome of a baseball game or a season. And that is what's going on when it comes to the efficacy or maybe I should say lack thereof, of public education across our public school districts. Now, I'm going to need to start a category of far middle topics and connections that fall under the hard-to-believe grouping. And it seems like time and time again, we keep finding these facts and stories that when you read them the first time, at least I have a hard time believing that it's true. But then you realize it is indeed factual and true, which then creates a tremendous amount of concern and worry so here's another one to place in that filing cabinet of far middle history, again, that we'll label hard to believe. Stanford University, out there in Palo Alto, collaborated in a study with the Associated Press. To do what? To analyze enrollment data for school-aged children all across the United States, and to see what the trends have been over the past couple of years, and especially with all the commotion and chaos created by pandemic policies, right? So it'd be even more interesting to assess that. What the study concluded or perhaps a better term would be highlighted or exposed, with school districts have lost track of thousands of students who left public schools since the pandemic started. And no one seems to know how many of those students who left are either AWOL or truant, or if they've gone other routes such as homeschooling. Now that's hard to believe, but here's what makes it even harder to believe. The study found there were no records last school year for more than 240,000 school-aged children across 21 states and Washington, D.C. That's right. Collectively, our public education system across this country, it lost track of almost a quarter of a million school-aged students, and nobody seems to care. 
What we do know, based on other research, is that some of those 240,000 children ended up in private schools or homeschooled. But there are no data or research that would even come close to indicating that those two options account for anything close to the 240,000 students, or perhaps I should say prior students who are now unaccounted for children when it comes to their educational journey. One of the Stanford professors who performed this study put it best by stating, there's this chunk that we just can't explain. And if you can't track a child, then how can the system that lost the child be relied on with confidence to educate a child? And if you can't keep track of 240,000 children, why is the automatic answer to fixing what ails public education always going to be more money, when instead the answer should be immediate and substantive reform? You know, it begs the question as to whether public unions have become so powerful and so self-centered on their political power and agendas that not only are they failing to educate school-age children in public schools when it comes to math and science and reading and English, but now the public unions and the administrative state within public education, they've literally lost the ability and interest in simply keeping track of students. And by the way, this problem is truly systemic, as in nationwide. As I said, the study in the 240,000 unaccounted for children covered over 20 states and the District of Columbia. Now, everyone says, and I'm along with this crowd, that education is everything, and the next generation is always going to be the most important generation. But if you lose the ability to simply track the physical status of students within the public education system, and then on top of it, you fail to educate those students that remain in the public education system, then there's no hope for attaining an efficacy level of public education that would be reasonable to expect for the most powerful nation on earth. And if you lost track of players in a game or in a season of Major League Baseball, you'd lose the ability to figure out who were the best, who got better, and who ended up winning. And if we're doing the same thing when it comes to public education, we got way bigger problems than a losing streak on an extended baseball road trip. Might be time for wholesale change to the lineup, front office, and ownership. Let's connect to this topic of the implications when it comes to data and statistics and what they tell us when policy starts to harm quality of life, you know, whether it be with respect to education or other contributors to quality of life. Statistics don't lie, and we'll start to tell a pretty compelling story. And there are two arenas where the statistics are starting to tell an interesting story. And we're starting to see such a story developing in the great state of California. I saw data for personal income tax revenues for California recently, and that might seem boring, but I think it's one of those key leading indicators as to the cumulative impacts of government policy and of economic conditions. So when government policy is set in a proper way and it improves quality of life, you should see the tax revenues increase as economy and commerce grow. Conversely, when policy is ill-advised, then you'd expect to see government revenues falling off of a cliff particularly for states where individual citizens that have the means and can afford it, they simply decide to pick up and leave. Now, we're seeing the latter phenomenon, unfortunately, occurring as we speak in California. The state's personal income tax revenues are dropping, and the best word I can use to describe this is precipitously. And if the trend continues, you can be sure that the math is going to dictate troubling times and difficult decisions are going to be looming large for California. And that sort of makes sense. Horrible policies have been enacted across the entire economic spectrum in the state, and the biggest contributors to the economy that have the means to exit the state, they're going to do that or they will do it. Economic growth in the private sector languishes, 
And then you see all of that accumulating into declining personal income tax revenues. Now, the second place where this phenomenon is starting to play out, you know, in some ways is even more troubling and starker than what's going on in California. And that is what is occurring with the federal government and its budget and balance sheet. Statistics and math tell us that the government debt has exploded at over $31 trillion. Economic growth has flattened out or it's declined because of the ill-advised policies enacted from climate to labor to tax. And interest rates, they're rising as the Federal Reserve belatedly attempts to put out a raging inflation fire that it's created with over a decade of nominal low interest rates, negative real interest rates, and free money. You know, I laughed uh, the other day. I wanted to share this with you. When someone on television stated that the Federal Reserve is acting as both the arsonist and the firefighter when it comes to monetary policy. I think that's a, an apt descriptor. Anyway, if you look at the federal net interest costs as a percent of tax receipts, and you take the Congressional Budget Office or CBO forecast through 2033, what you'll find is interesting, shocking, and I think unprecedented. Because the CBO forecast says federal net interest costs are going to approach 20% of tax receipts by 2033, and I've got to tell you, constant listeners, that when you look at some of the assumptions the CBO is applying when developing that forecast, there's a really good chance the CBO is underestimating the percent of tax receipts that the federal government will spend on net interest costs. It may end up being much worse and higher than the 20% that is currently forecasted by the end of the next 10 years. And I mentioned this was unprecedented. That's because the CBO forecast has federal net interest costs hitting a level of tax receipts that we haven't seen in the modern era, or at least since 1960, which is as far back as my data went. It wasn't that bad during stagflation in the 70s. It wasn't that bad during the Cold War, where we tried to outspend the Soviets and we stressed our finances. It wasn't that bad during the Iraq wars, and it wasn't that bad during the global financial crisis of 2008 and 2009. We are heading for unprecedented and uncharted waters when it comes to the balance sheet, and the debt level, and the budgetary health of the federal government. It's all staring us in the face in the statistics, just like baseball box scores. Now, as we jump into the next topic, you can sort of get the feeling that our connections this episode are cumulative ones, where the next one is the result of the series of the prior ones altogether. Anyway, let's take statistics and math, government finances, and the impact of ill-advised policy through the years to talk about what's going on in another country across the pond and how that might be a harbinger of things to come in these United States. The country I'm talking about is France, and the issue they are contending with is the massive protests the country experienced late winter and now early spring this year over President Macron's attempt to reform French pension laws. And I thought this was a, a good topic for this episode, not only because it's a natural dot to connect to based on our prior topics that we just covered, and not only because, as I said, it could be indicative of what we will soon be facing here in America, but also because the topic itself, it's quite interesting and not as simple as I first thought it was, and just allow me to explain. So Macron wants to do something that appears to be quite simple and reasonable on the surface, and that is increasing the minimum pension age in France from what is now 62 years to 64 years. And he's looking to do this form of pension reform without a vote from the French National Assembly through some sort of technicality that's found in the French Constitution. Um, that, of course, stokes the ire of a lot of people and has its own governance issues, uh, but we'll leave those aside. Now, increasing the minimum retirement age to 64 
as I said, it looks to be quite reasonable when you compare that to retirement ages in other European nations. So Italy is an example, not exactly the most efficient of European economies, but it's got a retirement age of 67. In fact, there's no other major European nations that have a retirement age anywhere close to, or should I say as low as, the current 62 years for France. And increasing it to 64 years would still place France at a lower retirement age than Germany, Italy, the UK, Norway, Spain, and Portugal. So the new French target that President Macron is pushing of 64 years, it still looks low relative to peers. And that's sort of where I landed on assessing this at first blush. But it's a little more complicated than that. Some of the details highlight just how complicated it can be. So the most notable to me is that to retire at age 62, you must have worked for 42 years, which means working nonstop from the age of 20 to 62. And by 2025, that number, by the way, goes up and a French worker would need to be employed for 43 years or start working basically at age 19 to be eligible for a pension at 62. The, uh, the benefit calculation, the way you calculate your benefit, that's also some detail of interest. It's 50% of a worker's average salary over the best paid 25 years. And for every year less than the 42 years that you accumulated as a worker, that 50% of your best 25 years, it gets reduced further. So I think it's somewhere in the 2.5% per year for every year that you fall short of 42 years neighborhood or that, that type of a haircut, that level of a haircut. Now, let me point out that if, if you work to 67, then you get a full pension. So these rules that I'm talking about here, they apply only for the minimum age retirement of 62 years. In French workers, they've got to contribute more of their wage during their working careers to pension and taxes than what most of their fellow workers contribute in the rest of Europe and in the United States. So French workers are effectively contributing more over their career, which would logically lead one to think that they should receive a larger pension when retired, all things being equal. Yeah, it's not as simple as it seems on the surface of just a single metric of retirement age for early retirement going from 62 to 64 years. But French pensioners are still enjoying better benefits all in when compared to peer nations, even after you account for all of these different factors that we just discussed. In this pension discussion, it also gets us into the statistics and the math of French national finance, because France spends 14% of its GDP on pensions, which is easily one of the highest levels in the world. It's double the OECD average, and it'll get more expensive as the population in France inevitably ages due to low fertility rates in France and it being under sort of the worker replacement ratio. So there's only 1.7 workers in France per pensioner today, and it's projected, that ratio is projected to go down to 1.3 soon. And then you add in longer life expectancy and you start to see that a bad pension situation is going to be getting much worse pretty quickly. So Macron, he's doing the right thing, or maybe the better word is necessary thing. Actions need to be taken to bolster what looks to be a system set on a course of default without reform. And more than just raising the minimum retirement age from 62 to 64 will almost certainly need to be done. This uh, is just basically the first step. And what else would constitute more being done? Well, a lot of things, as in more taxes on business and income and activity, and probably more changes or tweaks to the pension system that result in the end in lowering the payouts and uh, what you get later in life to retirees. It's math and statistics per our core themes of episode 101. And ironically, the protesters, or at least most of them, they agree the math is a problem and the pension and national finances need to be healed 
or bolstered. But the protesters, you know, they want, of course, the fixes to be paid for by other stakeholders, from the populist drumbeat of taxing the rich and corporations um, to more subdued arguments to place the tab in the lap of the next generation. In other words, sort of kicking the can down the road as is ever popular in the West these days when it comes to addressing fiscal health. And I'd like to connect this discussion of France's inevitable pension problems and their overall sort of financial illness back to the United States and our statistics and what's going on with the math here. I painted some gloomy pictures when it comes to the fiscal health of the United States a few minutes ago, but I left out when I was discussing that what I would call these off-balance sheet liabilities and commitments of our government in the form of things like Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid. Those, those items are massive. Um, they are growing at astonishing rates, and they take what is a very shaky balance sheet and effective cash flow statements and future fiscal projections, and they turn them into ones that look as ugly as France's financials going into the future. On an annual basis, Medicare and Medicaid, they're over $1.5 trillion a year. Uh, Social Security is not much better, almost $1.3 trillion per year. If you were to present value those annual outlays, you would come up with these off-balance sheet liabilities that are on par with or exceed, depending on your assumptions, the $31-plus trillion of national debt. And what ends up looking like a debt-to-GDP ratio of a frightening 120% when you just count the debt itself, it ends up being something much, much higher than that when you include these off-balance sheet commitments, which makes, of course, our financial future prospects even more terrifying. Not including the present value of things like Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid when assessing our nation's financial health, it's ridiculous to the point where it is self-delusional. We can connect back to the baseball analogy to make the point. If I had a favorite baseball player and I wanted to argue to you that they were a great hitter because they rarely struck out, how credible would my argument be if I decided that the player who, let's say, played for the Pirates in the National League Central Division when stating his number of strikeouts for a year, I excluded any strikeouts he had when playing against the National League East or the National League West or American League foes. I just counted the strikeouts against National League uh, Central Division opponents. Of course, I'd be ridiculed of cooking the books and creating a false premise by manipulating statistics. In fact, in this case, not so much manipulating statistics, but outright ignoring the statistics. And all too often, That's what's happening when it comes to government finances, including here in the United States. The government cooks the books, manipulates the statistics by making rosy projections that everyone knows are never going to occur. An example of that is assuming that all these handouts and funding schemes will sunset at a certain period of time and stop the outlays, when the reality is the entitlement programs and spending programs within government, they never sunset once they're created. And then the government doesn't so much cook the books as much as it mangles the books by consciously excluding major and massive outlays or liabilities when stating things like debt-to-GDP ratio or budget deficits. That's the behavior of pretending that Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid, they don't count. They very much do count, and when you add it all up, that uh, financial reality, so to speak, this nation is facing is putting us in some pretty serious uh, predicaments. And to avoid default, a major adjustment in our ways is in immediate order. We're heading toward government austerity, the likes of which we have never seen. And that means more taxes, less spending, and both on a major scale. 
It's not going to be fun. It's likely to make us very sick economically, potentially for a long period of time. But it's the only hope that we've got of getting to a better place without going through an existential threat of a default by government. We're going to close out episode 101 with an inspiring story. Consider motivation for doing the hard work that lays ahead of us as a nation to write things, because what I'm about to tell you is an example of how America and Americans is the greatest country and are the greatest people, respectively, in history. I want to talk to you about someone you never heard of, but whose actions culminated in a life that few Americans would ever hope to match. His name is Michael Stoken. Michael was born in Turtle Creek, Pennsylvania, which is about 20 minutes of a drive from where I am sitting in suburban Pittsburgh. He attended Slippery Rock University in the 1960s. That's the same Slippery Rock where I recently spoke to petroleum engineering and science and professional safety students back in March. Michael was a naval aviator during the Vietnam War, and he was stationed on the Ticonderoga aircraft carrier in the Gulf of Tonkin. And in 1967, on the day of the initial airing of this episode, April 26th, Michael flew a mission over North Vietnam where his aircraft was hit by surfaced air missiles, and he still managed to complete his combat mission while his plane was damaged and on fire. He eventually had to crash land over North Vietnam. It wasn't clear at first whether he was killed in action or whether he was taken prisoner. Uh, the North Vietnamese broadcasted that he was taken prisoner, and there are some other uh, prisoners of war who gave testimonials that they heard of his name in different prisoner camps, although they couldn't verify it directly. And there were indications through a package returned to his family that may, he may have been alive and imprisoned in North Vietnam, but it couldn't be verified. So to this day, it's still not 100% clear whether he was killed in action or whether he died as a prisoner of war in captivity. But in the late 1970s, after he was confirmed deceased, Michael's family officially received the Medal of Honor awarded to him for his valor. Now, you don't get more Western Pennsylvania than Turtle Creek or Crick, as we like to say around here. You don't get more Appalachian than Western Pennsylvania, and you don't get more American than Appalachia. Michael Stoken represents the best that this country has to offer. Keep him in mind as motivation to keep up the fight and to do the right thing each and every day. Almost 2,500 Americans missing in action in Vietnam to this day, and those that returned home, you know, they were often greeted by some with behavior that bordered on the morally bankrupt. But here's one of those almost 2,500 MIAs you likely never heard of before, but now you have all you need to know about this hero. Enjoy spring, everybody, and see and talk to you soon.